2: Coming up on today's show, the vaccine mandates, restrictions, rules around traveling are gone in our country. Well, they're gone as of October 1st. Alberta defence lawyers have escalated their job action. A number of defence lawyer groups in our province will not be taking legal aid cases. And EI and CPP premiums are going up in the new year.
3: Based on the data accumulated over the last few weeks and months, we are announcing that the Government of Canada will not renew the order in Council that expires on September the 30th and will therefore remove all COVID-19 border requirements for all travellers entering Canada. <clears throat> this includes the removal of all federal testing, quarantine and isolation requirements, as well as the mandatory submission of health information in a Did you
2: hear that? It's Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos. Not renewing the strict restrictions, which means, um, all restrictions currently in place will expire on September 30th and be gone, at least for now. They did say, okay, we can bring it back if conditions change and we need to, but at this point, they're gone. And that means all of it. Okay. That right down to masks on planes will now become optional. Arrive can now optional, but not for anything to do with vaccine or health or anything like that. It's only as a customs declaration. Um, if you want to go ahead and do it that way. But uh, vaccine requirements, testing requirements, quarantine requirements, all of that stuff gone. No longer something that we're going to be doing in Canada as of October 1st. As I said, at least for now, let's put in all the qualifiers and you know we were talking about it earlier today and a lot of you were very excited and saying yes finally i can do this and i can do that so uh, it's going to mean uh, a change for some canadians and i know that there's a lot of groups that are more than happy to hear this announcement today we're going to chat with monette pascher who is the president of canadian airports council monette thanks so much for your time i appreciate you joining us
3: thanks for having me
2: um good news obviously how uh, how excited are you by the announcement today
3: Oh, I have a pretty big smile on my, on my face. We're very pleased. This decision is really going to help our industry get back on track and be globally competitive. So it's very important for tourism and travel.
2: A couple of things are Globally competitive. We really have been out of step with most countries um, over the past several months when it comes to these sorts of rules, correct?
3: Yes, there's over 50 countries that have moved on from many of these pandemic measures months ago. So um, while there are still a few throughout the world, um, we are definitely in the minority. So this will bring
2: us back in line with most other countries in the world. And in terms of travel and what it means for the industry, do you really think, how much of an impact do you expect this might have? Like, How many people do you think were sort of sitting on the sidelines because of these restrictions?
3: Well, really, I think this is going to help in a number of areas, you know, one help at our border. the arrive can act that it was mandatory it was slowing down the travel process i mean we've made tremendous gains with government to improve efficiencies and do everything we could to facilitate smoother movement of travel but there was still an impact in that people had to upload the arrive can information answer questions you know do that with the cbsa agent at times so there was a lot of duplication duplicative measures, so I think this will be a tremendous improvement for that, and and also, you know, a lot of Canadians and, and international travellers who are now unvaccinated will be able to travel, so there's a couple of um, items at play here.
2: And how about just removing some of the confusion, because every time we talk about this, there's always, okay, but what about, do I have to do this, do I have to do, this? I mean, there's just so much uncertainty, I think, for a lot of people who have decided to travel, what happens when I come home, um, and all that's going to be gone too.
3: It is. And, you know, we had mandatory random testing on arrival, which means, you know, if you were a U.S. business traveler and you came to Canada and you were randomly selected, that could be a challenge in terms of, you know, having to go get your test if you were positive or or if you were positive in the past and it was still coming up on a PCR test. Then you were have to quarantine. So this was a challenge for our travel and tourism industry. And we're now over that hurdle. So we're certainly very thrilled about that.
2: Um, when it comes to the ArriveCAN app now being optional and, and, you know, only for customs declaration, that's not really out of line, right? There's a lot of countries that move to uh, an app-based system for customs rather than the old piece of paper. This is something that, once again, Canada has been a little behind in adopting.
3: Correct. Yeah, we've been wanting to move forward for some time and and CBSA, which is our custom border services agency, has been working on becoming more digital and helping facilitate passengers digitally so having this customs declaration on the app, which is voluntary and people can choose to use it as it will speed up the border process we've seen it help and we need to move forward you know even more so in terms of technology you know e-gates have been installed at some of our airports and i think we need to keep taking steps forward so that we can um, digitally process passengers instead of having Mm -hmm. a custom agent manually process passengers every time.
2: It makes perfect sense. You're absolutely right, which makes it easier on the airport staff and personnel. And I imagine the announcement that came out today is also a huge relief for the people who work in Canada's airports that have had to try and navigate this uh, for many, many months now. And uh, I'm sure it's great news for them as well, right? I mean, just for people who work in the airport and need to operate airports, this Fantastic.
3: Yes, fantastic news for for all members of the airport ecosystem and certainly um, airline personnel that have had to manage through the challenges in the mask mandate being different in different countries as they're flying, and also, you know, the mask mandate being imposed in certain parts of the airport and not other parts of the airport. So um, those those uh, changes were certainly challenging. And, you know, really we're in a different place in the pandemic now and there's a new context. And I think, um, you know, happy to see today's decision that we're moving forward and that it's more about individual choice.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And a lot of people wondering, okay, that's great. Canada's doing this. What have we heard about the U.S.? What have we heard about the U.S.? As far as I know, we haven't heard anything yet, right? The rules still apply to travel into the U.S.
3: Yeah, well, the mask mandate has been down in the U.S. For, for months now. So that measure has been no longer. But in terms of the vaccine mandate, that is still in play in the U.S.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and and as I said, no word on when that might change. But but some good news and some news we've been wanting for a while. Mona, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Right now, though, we're going to have a conversation I think is pretty important. As of today... Um, lawyers in Alberta have escalated their work action for defense lawyer groups, and well, actually there's some others too. Uh, they've been raising concerns about the legal aid system in Alberta for some time now. We've had them on the show a few times. As of now, they're out no longer accepting new cases. That represents Albertans, of course, who can't otherwise afford a lawyer. You know how it works. That's just part of what's going on. So let's get the details. We're going to chat with Danielle Boisvert, who is a criminal defense lawyer in Edmonton and the president of the Criminal Trial Lawyers Association. Danielle, thank you for joining us once again. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. Okay, so just bring us up to speed. That's it. Are any legal aid cases being accepted by defense lawyers who don't work directly for legal aid at this point?
1: Uh, Not those that are taking part in our recommended job
2: action. Okay, and that's the four groups that we talked about. Is it still those four core groups that are primarily um, taking this action?
1: Primarily. uh, However, we're encouraged to hear that there are a number of uh, family lawyers that have reached out to us and indicated to us that they are joining us. They don't have their own organization, but they have... Um, indicated their support and their commitment. And then we have non-member criminal lawyers who have also done the same and have expressed the same level of commitment.
2: Okay. So for Albertans who, as we know, can't afford a lawyer and, and need a legal aid option, what will that mean for them starting today? Is, is that possible? I mean, there are still the legal aid roster, but what's it going to mean for Albertans who need uh, legal aid?
1: Absolutely. What it's going to mean, unfortunately, is that for people just entering into the court system right now, as of today, whether that be criminal, family or immigration, um, they will not have lawyers that normally take on their certificates to represent them uh, available to them.
2: Um, How many people, like, is there any way of knowing, if you want to put a number on this, does this mean that, you know, like 50 people a day, a thousand people a day? How many people a day typically are applying for legal aid?
1: Um, I would guess that it's in the 50 to 100s a day. Um, I know that there's a very busy call center at Legal Aid that deals with the intakes and applications for certificates,
2: um, and they are a very, very busy call center. Um, will this mean that some people are not, don't have access to representation? I mean, I, th- I thought that was sort of the cornerstone of our system. You, were, you are entitled to legal representation. Is that now actually a jeopardy?
1: It is to the extent that as lawyers we need to, this is the only way that we have to signify to our provincial government that immediate change is absolutely necessary to continue to have the kind of uh, justice system that Albertans want to see in their province.
2: So just so I'm clear and so the audience understands, there's, there's groups like yours which don't yes. work directly for legal aid. There are a roster of legal aid lawyers. That's what they do, and they're continuing to work. But you guys pick up a tremendous amount of the caseload, uh, and you're not, correct? Is that how this, the situation we're in right now?
1: Um, so just one correction. We are the roster lawyers. Lawyers are a large group of about 1,200 lawyers across Alberta that take on their certificates. The staff lawyers that work directly for legal aid are only about, I think it's between 200 or 300 at most. um, And they uh, do a lot of administrative work as well as legal work. They're not all frontline lawyers in the courtrooms. Um, so there's the Youth Criminal Defense Office, which is loosely still exists. They now do some adult matters as well.
2: Gotcha. Okay. And um, the situation there is um, been pretty, they, they've sort of just nosed to the grindstone and kept doing the job, but they're also sort of getting more involved with your cause, correct? The actual legal aid staff?
1: Uh, no, I wouldn't say the staff lawyers are getting involved. They they haven't sh- um, started striking with us, if you would, uh, in terms of actually being direct employers, whereas we are the vendors to, the, to Legal Aid. They're the direct employees, excuse me, to Legal Aid. Um, so they haven't joined us out in our protests. Um, we've certainly seen the support that they've provided us in terms of the overall cause, but they are also the staff lawyers are the ones that are okay. there to try to fill in the gap. But the gap is becoming too much for a small group of staff lawyers to be able to fill.
2: Right, okay. Uh, so just how we got here, this is the latest escalation, but it started months ago, right? There's been issues uh, surrounding legal aid and, you know, continuing pressure from lawyers to try and get some resolution. Uh, and, and you haven't gotten anywhere, have you?
1: Uh, not yet. Uh, we have uh, some room This or it's reached some movement this week. Uh, we have set up some meetings with the Minister's office for early this week. So we're hopeful to reopen the lines of communication and hopefully they're willing to hear us. We're willing to provide the evidence that Mr. Chandra says he needs um, to show that the need is urgent to increase both the financial eligibility guidelines for Albertans to access our services Mm -hmm. and make the system for lawyers one in which Alberta attracts experienced good quality lawyers to do the work necessary for Legal Aid Alberta.
2: Okay, so those two issues there, if we can just spend a second on them. The the, the financial eligibility, it's extremely low, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of Albertans who probably aren't in a position to afford legal representation that can't access legal aid. That's part of the problem here?
1: There's a huge middle gap. As a single person with no dependents, if you make more than $21,000 a year of income, gross, you will not qualify for legal aid services. Um, That is huge. So could you imagine somebody, a student or, or somebody just starting out making twenty-five to $30,000 a year getting charged with a serious offense and legal aid says, sorry, you make too much money, you can afford a lawyer on yeah. your own. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
0: Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. That's just not going to happen. That's not realistic. And, and the other issue, of course, is
2: how much lawyers are getting paid to do this representation, Right.
1: Correct. Uh, Right now, Alberta lawyers are paid at a rate that is about anywhere, depending on their year of experience, anywhere between 30 to 50 percent less than our counterparts in Ontario
2: and D.C. Now, the government response, as they've said from day one, is be patient. This will be part of the budget process in 2023. We're doing a review that's supposed to be done next month. Is is that not reasonable, Um, Danielle? Is it not something, okay? we'll wait for another six or eight months?
1: The difficulty right now is that there's been no commitment. There is simply we'll look at it, we'll look at it. We need evidence, we'll look at it. Um, In our view, the evidence was provided in a meeting last October. It was provided again early this spring. And what the government authorized was half measures um, of what we were asking for. And what we're asking for is the full measure now. The governance agreement that the NDP put into place in 2018 needs to be Matt, the reviews need to be done, not just a promise, but a commitment.
2: Um, And ultimately, the effect here for anybody involved in the legal system, uh, slowdowns, delays, ultimately, could we see cases being thrown out because of this?
1: Ultimately, yes. I mean, when you think back to, um, in the early 2000s when Ontario went through this, so many cases ended up being backlogged in the system, um, that it, I think the number was somewhere close to 50,000 cases between minor cases and some, some more serious cases ended up being ultimately stayed by the prosecutor because there simply was no way for all of those cases to get through the system
0: what's
2: the timeline on that is there any way of knowing are we a week away from that a month from that i mean what's the situation
1: um it would be a little bit more of a long-term impact similar to what a covid style delay had it's a bottleneck at the front end that results in long-term delays down the line So the longer this job action takes place, the longer we have sort of a COVID-like closure of nothing moving forward in the court system, the more delays it will create down the road.
2: Gotcha. Okay. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Uh, Speaking of cost of living, it's been on the minds of, well, all of us, right? Uh, and for very good reason. Uh, with inflation skyrocketing the first half of this year, interest rates have gone up. Life has just become more expensive. It's a focal point, and it should be, and politicians should be talking about it, and they have. Pierre Polyev uh, and the Conservatives are taking the Liberal government to task. Uh, last week in the House, Polyev was after Trudeau about increases to what he calls payroll taxes, and even that is a bit of a fight. Uh CPP and EI premiums, which indeed are going up, but it's... It's very easy to say he's increasing payroll taxes, Oh, well, okay, but there's more to it, there's more of a discussion around that, so to help us walk through it, we have um, Trevor Toome joining us, he's an associate professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary. Trevor, thank you for joining us, appreciate your time. Oh, great to be here, thanks for having me on. So let's just establish what we're talking about here, CPP and EI are in fact going up, but how much, I mean, how much of an increase are we talking about in reality here?
0: Well, for EI, we are talking about an increase from the current 1.58% to 1.63%. So it's going up by 0.05%. So in terms Um, of average dollars, it it, it might cost you two, three bucks a month, maybe? uh, I mean, that'll depend on how much uh, you earn, whether your earnings are subject to those EI deductions. So individual circumstances will vary, of course. Um, but, but, yeah, it, it's not a uh, particularly large increase, uh, although it is the first increase we've seen in EI in a couple of years now. Um, and it's
2: maxed, right? There's a max uh, after, I think it's, what, about 60,000? Something like that after that doesn't go up
0: anymore? That's right. So currently it's 60,300, and that's okay. kind of when it stops.
2: Alright, now, let's try and determine whether or not these are taxes, because that's what they're called in some corners. and other corners, it's, no, 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 they're savings plans, because, I mean, ultimately, you are supposed to get
0: the money back if you need it or when you need it. So, is it right to call these payroll taxes? So I would call them payroll taxes uh, because they are deductions that uh, <laughs> that are mandatory, and they don't, they're not tied to you as an individual. So they go into a pot, EI goes into general revenue, uh, for example. But yeah, there's an interesting de- uh, debate about that. I'd say the debate is a little stronger with CPP about whether those should be viewed as, as payroll taxes or, or not, uh, although... Yep, uh, I am one of those who would call them payroll tax.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's money taken off your check, just like all the rest of them. Um, why is yeah. it happening? Why, why are we seeing the increases? Let's start with CPP. Why is
0: that going up? Sure. So CPP, this is interesting because it's not a federal program. We think of it as a federal program, but it's a joint federal-provincial program. And a few years ago, uh, all of the governments, so the federal government, provincial governments, uh, agreed unanimously to expand the size of the Canada Pension Plan and to gradually phase in this expansion, which began in 2019, uh, and we're nearing the end of that phase in right now. So these rate increases that we're seeing are the result of the decision to make CPP gradually more generous. Um, and so this is important to keep in mind, because even if the federal government wanted to uh, stop the increase? It couldn't. It needs two-thirds of the provinces with two-thirds of the population to agree to any amendment to the Canada Pension Plan.
2: Okay, that's a, yeah, that's definitely a point that's worth mentioning, no doubt about it. Um, increases to EI, we're seeing that as well. As Like you said, I mean, they're not massive, but they are going up. Why? Is it the same situation
0: to try and top things up? So EI is an interesting program because we change or evaluate that uh, tax rate uh, every single year, okay. and we set that rate so that there's not an accumulated surplus or deficit in the EI account over a certain time horizon. And during the pandemic, the government froze the um, the EI rate, and that meant that um, it accumulated a pretty sizable deficit, about $27 billion. And so now that the cap um on that rate is expiring uh this year the tax rate will gradually rise in the coming years to eliminate that accumulated deficit in the program um and this one's
2: kind of tricky for Polyev, right when he talks about raising the ei premiums because even after this increase they're still lower than they were when he was in charge of
0: ei right That's right. So in 2015, the EI uh, premium rate was 1.88%. And we're probably going to see rates increase up into about 1.7 to 1.8% in a couple of years' time. So still, even then, below where it was in 2015 and 16. Now, the reason why they were high then uh, was the same reason that the rates are increasing now during the financial crisis. The government froze premium rate for a couple of years. And then after the crisis ended, those premiums had to increase uh, to offset the accumulated deficit in the program.
2: All right. Some of the nuance there. I really appreciate the insight, Trevor. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.